Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, a partner in the antitrust practice at Freshfields in Washington and Brussels, and you're listening to the Essential Antitrust Podcast. The UK's Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill will go into effect next year. It's been described as a flagship bill that will introduce significant reforms to the UK's consumer and competition regimes, as well as introduce a new regulatory regime for digital markets. The bill is making its way through the UK Parliament. It recently reached the second chamber, the House of Lords, and debates and scrutiny of the bill will run well into 2024. Here with me today to discuss the bill are Sharon Molly and Ricky Haria, partners in our London competition team. Thanks for joining both. We'll dive into the detail in a minute, but before we do, Ricky, can you give us an overview of the bill? Why does the UK feel that this is needed and what's going to change when it goes into effect? Hey, Jen, of course. So the bill is part of a push for the UK's competition agency, the CMA, to take a more proactive approach to competition to spare economic growth, innovation and productivity. It aims to tackle a perceived problem that despite the breadth of the existing rules, markets are becoming more concentrated for longer periods of time, leading to higher prices for individuals and businesses. So in terms of what it does to solve these problems, first, it establishes a new ex-ante regulatory regime for large digital firms, which will be overseen by the Digital Markets Unit, or the DMU for short. Second, it casts a wider net for CMA intervention over M&A. Third, it gives the CMA stronger investigative tools and the ability to dish out tougher penalties. Fourth, it makes the CMA's market inquiry-based remedies powers faster and more flexible. And finally, it introduces fundamental changes to the UK's consumer protection laws. The bill will significantly strengthen the CMA's powers to directly enforce consumer law with investigatory powers and penalties similar to those under the competition law regime. And it expands the list of commercial practices that are deemed problematic. Thanks, Ricky. That's a helpful overview. And Sharon, Ricky had kind of set out five things that we can expect from this new law. And I want to dig into the first one that he mentioned, you know, a digital ex-ante regime. Is this the UK version of the EC's Digital Markets Act, which we've talked about on the podcast before? Thanks, Jen. I think the answer to that is probably yes and no. So both the DMA, as you say, and the DMCC establish a new framework to regulate certain large players. But at their core, they are taking different approaches. So the DMA is setting out a prescriptive list of the types of services that it feels should be designated as core platform services and and therefore regulated. And it also sets out a prescriptive upfront list of obligations that all designated gatekeeper companies need, need to comply with for those core platform services. But the DMCC, I think, you know, it is trying to be much more bespoke and targeted. So it will put in place uh, tailored codes of conduct, although it remains to be seen how tailored those will be. And it doesn't prescribe in the same way the categories uh, of services that should be regulated. Interesting. And, you know, when we look at the designation decisions under the DMA, that's kind of the who's who of big tech firms. Is that the same in the UK? Will it be that same kind of cluster of companies that are captured? I think we can expect that those same firms will also be captured by the DMCC, but it won't be only those firms. So the DMCC allows the CMA to designate businesses with strategic market status, so SMS firms, and that's really firms which the CMA thinks have a position of strategic significance and substantial and entrenched market power 
across a period uh, of, of the next five years. So large technology firms will be captured. But as was raised in debate in the House of Commons in November, there's nothing to prevent, say, a large retailer with a big online shopping function from also being designated as having that same strategic market status. The only other point I'd mention is that SMS designation does not apply to everything a business does. So it's just in respect of certain digital activities that meet those market power and strategic significance tests set out in the bill. And say, Sharon, that I'm one of these unlucky companies who's designated as a, as a having strategic market status. What does that mean? What do I have to do? What you'll have to do is ensure that you will comply with the obligations that the CMA will effectively require you to comply with under the code of conduct that it that it puts in place for you. And there are also uh, some other requirements needed in terms of informing the CMA of any M&A activity um, that you'll be planning to participate in similar there to the DMA's requirements. Essentially, how the CMA will police these requirements will be based on how they interact with consumers and, and, and other businesses. So the requirements are sketched out in the bill and they cross over in large part with the DMA's obligations. So they relate to the use of data or interoperability, or, you know, no self-preferencing. But the specifics of how those will be implemented is really going to be down to the CMA. Interesting. So take a step back from this. Is it right that this is all about trying to proactively prevent competitive harm? I think that's right. The, the interesting thing is the CMA here has been clear that you know it doesn't have to show consumer harm before it imposes a conduct requirement. So it will just have to meet one of three quite nebulous objectives of fair dealing, open choice, trust and transparency. And SMS firms can push back on some of that and they can point to countervailing benefits to avoid a conduct requirement being imposed. Now, that's an important defence that's already attracted quite a lot of attention. So the government had decided to drop the need for SMS firms to show that the conduct brings indispensable benefits to consumers. And it looks like you know there will be some effort to try and put this back in before the bill is settled. But I think the short answer is that the CMA's powers are wider um, under the DMCC. And, you know, I can imagine, you know, if I'm a company sitting here thinking I'm likely to be designated as having SMS, I'll be thinking, what happens if I just decide not to comply with these requirements? I assume the bill has some penalties in there. <laughs> yes. So the CMA will be able to enforce conduct requirements and also to uh, put in place pro-competitive interventions on SMS firms. So those pro-competitive interventions will be where the CMA thinks that an intervention is needed to remedy an adverse effect on competition. There's nothing in the bill that describes what, what those will be and what they will look like. The CMA will design them as it sees fit and they can be imposed alongside the conduct requirements. So, so businesses will also have to keep that in mind. And then, of course, there's you know, some of the more usual in the competition law world, at least we see usual fines that businesses will have to be aware of. So fines of up to 10 percent of uh, a company's turnover are part of the mix. So we've got pretty broad regimes, some potentially onerous requirements, pretty significant penalties if you choose not to comply. What recourse do companies have for decisions under the bill? Can they appeal 
a decision if they think it's not founded in the law or unfair or, or anything else? They can. So SMS firms can appeal DMU decisions, so they can appeal the designation decision itself, a conduct requirement or a, a pro-competitive in, intervention, a PCI. But it's really the grounds, Jen, that are actually more controversial here. So under the current draft of the bill, the level of appeal for the majority of the DMU's decisions is based on judicial review grounds, so JR grounds. And that will be if an SMS firm thinks that the DMU's decision or the process to get to that decision uh, is illegal, irrational or procedurally unfair. And then the government has also made a recent amendment to allow firms to challenge conduct requirements and PCIs on a proportionality basis. So that covers the judicial review option. Are there any alternatives? Well, there's been a push for a full merits review basis, and that's much wider. So that would allow the Competition Appeal Tribunal to look at incorrect procedure but it would also allow it to look at if the CMA had made an error on the basis of fact or law, as is the case for Competition Act antitrust investigations in the UK. And it's also the approach of the EU courts, including for the DMA. And what's the argument against that? Well, it's a pretty hotly contested point and probably hasn't escaped the attention of many of our listeners. So there's two sides here. So the CMA on the one hand and you know some MPs and peers are really saying that the JR standard is fair. So to their mind, the CMA is the expert regulator. It knows what it's doing. That's the standard used for merger decisions. And the priority really should be to avoid the regime getting clogged up in the courts. But the flip side of that is that is putting a huge amount of power in the hands of the CMA. Ultimately, this is still a very new and expansive regime. It goes to the heart of how firms across a wide variety of services will do business, how they design and roll out their products and services. We're talking about products that are global in operation, um, how they will be required to handle data, provide access in some instances to their competitors. So that plus the significant penalties attached make it a far wider regime than the mergers regime. And essentially, the current approach is saying, trust the regulator, it, know, it, it knows what it's doing. Um, there's no point in giving things a second look on the facts of the law because that will take too long. And I think that in a regime like this, with penalties like this, similar to Competition Act investigations, that really does pre present some significant dangers. Got it. Thanks, Sharon. That's a really helpful overview of the, the digital markets part of the bill. Um, but Ricky, I think, you know, you mentioned at the outset that there are a lot of other parts of this bill than just the digital markets piece. Um, what else can we expect to change when this goes into effect? Well, Jen, first up, there's a new merger review threshold. So a bit of background on that. As many of our listeners will know, there's been concern about the increasingly unpredictable application of the UK's existing 25% share of supply test. And there have been some recent decisions that left a lot of us scratching our heads as to how the CMA could claim jurisdiction over those deals. So the bill has a new acquirer-focused threshold that seeks to dispel some of this ambiguity. It will let the CMA intervene in deals where one party has a significant market presence in the UK and the other party has a UK connection. OK, so does that mean that going forward, the CMA doesn't have to establish that there's any kind of a horizontal overlap to look at a deal? They just kind of have to show that both parties are significantly active in the UK? 
Exactly. Now the CMA, or you know, when this comes into force, the CMA will have a solid basis to intervene in so-called vertical and conglomerate deals, even where the target has very little presence in the UK. To give an example, we understand the CMA took the view that it did not have jurisdiction to review the infamous Illumina Grail transaction, which was a vertical deal. And that deal attracted heavy scrutiny in the US and the EU and was also prohibited by the European Commission. This new threshold would enable the CMA to investigate these types of deals more easily. And, you know, we have this new threshold coming in. Sounds like it it gives the CMA a lot of discretion. Does that mean that we get to get rid of the 25% share of supply threshold or is that still hanging around? (laughs) So that's still sticking around. That said, a bit of welcome news for businesses is that the other existing threshold, the one based on turnover, will be raised from 70 million to 100 million pounds. And the bill will also introduce a safe harbor for small mergers where each party's UK turnover is less than 10 million pounds. So if I am, you know, a business that does a lot of M&A thinking about what's coming next in the regulatory world, what should I be taking away from all this for a merger review in the UK going forward? So if you're you know, doing a global deal involving companies who are based outside of the UK and on its face, there could be some concerns relating to things like ecosystems or flywheel effects or, or killer acquisition types of considerations. It, it's more likely now that the CMA will, will be able to look at and review the transaction if it's minded to do so. And that means businesses should be thinking about a global strategy that takes into account the differences that may emerge between key regulators in Europe, the US and Asia. And so stepping aside from the merger world, you also mentioned at the outset that the new bill would give the CMA stronger investigative tools, tougher penalties. What is the story there? Yeah, so the bill seeks to give the CMA new information gathering and enforcement powers, primarily to make antitrust investigations run more quickly. So it covers a range of things. There's things like broadening the power to interview individuals, the ability to seize and sift evidence when inspecting domestic premises under warrant, and also extending the legal duty to preserve evidence relevant to an investigation. On top of all of that, the bill introduces more powers to support cooperation between the CMA and other international authorities when they're running, for example, parallel investigations into the same type of conduct. And if a company fails to comply with an information request, it conceals evidence or it provides false or misleading information to the CMA, that that can result in quite heavy penalties. How tough are we talking? So it's a fixed penalty of 1% for annual turnover, as well as the possibility of a daily penalty of 5% of daily turnover while non-compliance continues. And that's instead of or in addition to the fixed penalty. Okay, so nothing to sneeze out there. So how can businesses start to prepare for this to go into effect? So a lot of this is compliance preparation, and it makes sense for businesses to be checking and revisiting their internal processes, both for responding to requests that authorities may send, but also how they monitor compliance with any orders the CMA enforces or, or also commitments they've entered into with, with the CMA. So, Ricky, I also want to turn to the final point you mentioned, which is the the new market powers that are created by this new bill. So, first of all, for folks outside the UK like me who who don't kind of know the nomenclature, what are market inquiries? So, market inquiries, which, which constitute both market studies and market investigations, allow the CMA to investigate markets as a whole. 
where particular features of that market may be adversely impacting competition. And we've seen a number of these. You know, recently there have been these types of inquiries into electric vehicle charging, house building, road fuel, to name a few. So while the CMA is not assessing whether specific companies have infringed competition laws, if it does find that competition isn't functioning well in markets for, for certain reasons, it can impose pretty wide-ranging structural behavioral remedies that can have an impact on all or a subset of players operating in the market. Okay, and what about that process will change in the new regime? Yep. So they can be quite slow lumbering beasts, often taking a couple of years. And what the bill tries to do is to make it easier for the CMA to run these market inquiries quicker in a more flexible way. So, for example, it gives the CMA greater flexibility to define the scope of its market investigations and also more opportunities to accept binding commitments from companies earlier on. The other thing it does is it lets the CMA vary the remedies it imposes for up to 10 years where the CMA believes that the remedy is ineffective. So, you know, that 10 years, Ricky, I mean, that seems like a really long window for the CMA to just be able to tinker with remedies to get somewhere it wants to go. Yeah, that's right. It is pretty long. And there is a cooling off period, which means the CMA can't change a remedy if it's only been in place for less than two years. But still, that 10-year period does give the CMA quite a lot of flexibility at the expense of certainty for businesses. And is there anything that businesses can do, should do to get ahead of some of these changes? So we're expecting a ramp up in the number of market inquiries that the CMA does over the coming years. So something companies should be thinking about is whether competition is working well in their industry. And if there are particular systemic consumer complaints that may trigger a CMA market inquiry. Thanks, Ricky. I mean, that's all really helpful. I, I do, in some of our, our remaining time, want to turn to what is changing from a consumer perspective, because I think you mentioned that the CMA is getting some new enforcement powers there as well. Yes, that's right, Jen. It's, it's all part of a push to tackle cost of living challenges and ensure consumers can shop with confidence, particularly online. So at the moment, the UK regime has an approach where there are no civil penalties for common consumer protection breaches. The CMA essentially has to go to court to impose fines for consumer law breaches. What, what the bill is seeking to do is to put the CMA's consumer enforcement powers on an equal footing with the existing competition regime. And that will mean the CMA can intervene in breaches of consumer protection more quickly. It can tackle more cases. It can find companies directly and even impose remedies for breaking consumer protection rules. So like the bill's digital markets regime that Sharon spoke about earlier, fines can reach up to 10% of global turnover. Okay. And you mentioned that it cuts out going to the courts. What is the practical implication of that? What that means in practice is that we're likely to see an uptick in CMA consumer law enforcement, and that enforcement may take place at a quicker pace. Some of that also comes down to the fact that the net of consumer protection rules is getting wider. Oh, dear. I'm, I'm afraid to ask. In, in what way? The bill is going to expand what the CMA will be able to deem an unfair commercial practice, or as the bill puts it, a relevant infringement that harms the collective interests of consumers. And that means we are likely to see tougher regulation on different types of practices. And that includes things like subscription contracts, consumer savings schemes and inertia selling. 
Okay, interesting. Sharon, maybe turning to you on this, any idea of what the scale is required for the CMA to step in here? Is there kind of a threshold level of harm that counts as a collective interest before they will decide to get involved? It's a good question, Jen. I think the short answer, though, is that we don't know, or at least there's no indication in the bill on the threshold of harm required. So it's not clear, you know, whether you need two or 2,000 consumers to satisfy this collective interest condition. I think we should expect, though, given the types of areas that the CMA has expressed that it's keen to, to focus on and that the bill is focusing on, so Ricky mentioned subscription contracts, consumer schemes and inertia selling. Well, in all of those cases, I think it goes to the framework of what's being offered to consumers. So for businesses that have consumer-facing propositions involving these types of practices, then it probably will not be too difficult to to satisfy this uh, collective interest threshold as being relevant. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, Ricky mentioned this point about subscription contracts, which is something that the FTC here in the U.S. has been looking at with a real focus on ways that it might become easier for consumers to cancel recurring subscriptions. Yep, it's it's a real focus here for the CMA. So given so many UK households, of course, have multiple subscriptions, uh, and it's an area that the CMA has already looked at prior to the proposals in this bill, it's really clear that the CMA wants to be able to do more in this area and to be able to do that without going to court, um, doing it directly and, and bringing about changes, probably in its view, more quickly. It's linked in many ways to some of the other themes underpinning the bill. So the points we discussed earlier around open choices, transparency, uh, and how those play into to subscriptions, but also some of the other areas that the CMA is looking at. So fake reviews, drip pricing, uh, online scams. So it, it, it's all part of that mix. So Ricky, one question I have listening to what Sharon just said is, it sounds like now businesses aren't going to have a chance to defend themselves in court. Uh, before the CMA finds them for competition breaches. But can they still appeal decisions? Yes, they can. And it's largely on those wider merits grounds that Sharon spoke about earlier. Got it. Thanks very much for that. Before we wrap up, one point I want to touch on, and, and Sharon, maybe you can speak to this. I'm conscious that you said this bill is still live. It's still being scrutinized in the House of Lords. Amendments will be proposed. What is your expectation for what this looks like when it actually goes into effect. Are we seeing now pretty much the form it's going to take or is it expected to change quite a bit still between now and implementation? I think it's right. I think the shape of the bill now is is pretty clear. There's widespread support for the bill. There's still some tension between getting the balance right, as we can see from some of the government's amendments and some of the debate amongst peers on the bill about what's the right balance for the UK in in the current political climate, but then still a feeling amongst some legislators that the bill still doesn't go far enough. For me, I think the big push will be also on the consumer section of the bill that we've been talking about. So legislators really do want to see more being done to protect consumers and, and, and for that to be done more quickly. So these themes around fake reviews, drip pricing, online scams. They're all areas that that all businesses will really need to pay close attention to. We're also expecting some amendments to be proposed to make alternative dispute resolution mechanisms more accessible 
for individuals that face consumer related issues and, and also potentially a right of collective action for consumer law breaches similar to the existing regime in, in the competition world. So I think lots to look out for in the time ahead. Exactly. And and when we come back from the Christmas break, the House of Lords will be looking at a number of these points and a number of the amendments which were proposed by certain MPs. And we may well see further changes being made. You know, as Sharon said, the fundamental shape is unlikely to change much at this stage, but there are still possibilities of material edits in, in certain respects. So we'll be keeping an eye out for those. Great. Well, thank you very much, both. I mean, it seems like the uh, excitement never ceases in the world of UK competition law these days. But it was really helpful to have both of you here to join and explain a little bit about the bill that's coming into effect. For those listening, if you want to find out more about any of the points we discussed today, you can take a look at a blog we published on recent points of debate on the bill and an accompanying in-depth briefing paper. This is our last Essential Antitrust podcast of the year, so I wish you all a very happy holiday and happy new year. And we'll see you all again in January with our annual 10 Key Themes podcast, where we'll be talking about all of the major themes that we're expecting to see around the world in competition enforcement in 2024. Until then, you're listening to Essential Antitrust.